0: I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad.
1: Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 420 for Monday, July 22nd, 2013. Today's guest is trombonist Jeff Albert. As you know, during the month of July, I've been running a Kickstarter campaign to raise money for the return of the Jazz Session. The idea is to raise $6,000 by the end of the day on July 31st, And that will lead to 12 new episodes, one per month, of the jazz session. These will be expanded episodes. So in addition to the in-depth interviews that you've come to know and love and which will still be the central part of the show, there'll also be additional content at the end of each episode. It could be additional interviews. It might be reviews. Uh, Whatever it is, it's going to be bonus content at the end of every interview. So as I said, the goal is to raise $6,000 by the end of the day on July 31st. And as I'm recording this on Sunday night, the 21st, we have $3,821 from 124 people, which is 63% of the money. And there are, as you're listening to it, nine days remaining to raise the rest. So we need to raise about $2,200 in the next nine days, which we can absolutely do. To find out how you can contribute, and there are all kinds of thank you gifts for your pledge. Uh, To find out how you can contribute, just go to thejazzsession.com, and it's right there. (laughs) Trust me. It's right there on the site when you get there. Uh, There are, as I said, thank you gifts. Uh, Anything $10 and above, you instantly get a couple free MP3s, and there are just all kinds of thank you gifts as it goes up, up to uh, being able to come to a jazz session interview and uh, a baseball signed by all of the people who are on the new episodes and so on and so forth. So uh, all kinds of cool stuff coming up. Please do your part to bring the show back by contributing whatever you can afford at thejazzsession.com and just click the links to go to the Kickstarter campaign. This new episode is an interview that I actually recorded uh, quite some time ago with trombonist Jeff Albert. Jeff was on the show once before and and then in the interim, that, that was by phone. Uh, and then a couple of years later, he came to New York, where I was living, and I had a chance to talk to him about a new album uh, that he was about to put out. However, the album didn't come out before the jazz session ended its previous run, and so the interview never came out either. Exactly the same story that happened with the Jeffrey Kieser interview a couple episodes ago. So this album, The Tree on the Mound, is now out. And available. And if you go to the store section of the jazz just look in the notes for this show and you'll find a link there. Or just go to the jazz session.com and click on store. Anyway, you can buy the record there. But the album, The Tree on the Mound is now available. And so since we're in the middle of this Kickstarter, it seemed like a perfect time to play you this interview with Jeff Albert. So let's hear some music from that new record and then my conversation with New Orleans trombonist Jeff Albert. My guest for the second time is uh, trombonist and composer Jeff Albert. It's great to have you on the show again, man. Thanks for being here.
2: It's good to be here. It's nice to do it in person.
1: I was going to say, yeah, we got the full effect of the, the Albert bass tones in the voice, which the phone really <laughs> Which you don't work. get over the phone, right? Yeah. Well,
2: it's, and I've got that, that weird, like, this voice that I know really well that I see coming out of this body that I've never seen <laughs> before. Right,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very cool. Um uh, maybe So we're obviously – we're doing this in person not sadly because I'm in New Orleans but because you're in New York and maybe we can talk not about – Not
2: that it. the offer hasn't been made. It has
1: been made. It has been accepted on my end. It's it's merely a, a matter of of financing to get myself there, which I will do. Uh, but can you talk about why you're here in the city? You've had some cool experiences already. I, uh,
2: like- I came up for the past few days. I've been up at William Patterson University uh, for the International Society of for Improvised Music Conference. Um, and this, I think, was the sixth conference. It's the second one that I've been to. And it's a really fascinating collection of improvisers. And we get together and have performances and educational things and present research. It's, it's an academic conference, essentially. Um, and it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. There were some heavies there. Douglas Ewart was hanging out all week, and you know, anytime when you get to hang out and talk about improvising with Douglas Ewart, tell you know, people like, who he is. Who uh, Douglas now. was is a member of the AACM. Um, made one of my favorite duo records with George Lewis. That was a long time ago. That that record that they made. Um, he's from Chicago. Lives in Minneapolis now.
1: And is this a, a truly international conference with people from all over the place? There, yeah,
2: one of the presentations I saw was a guy from brazil it's it's still it's a young organization, sure, so it's mostly Americans, but there's always some European context, and uh usually a Brazilian or two will show up and and what do you get out of something like this what
1: What do you feel like you leave with
2: some of it is it's energizing to just be around that many people that are into trying to find ways to be better musicians mm. and better improvisers. Um, some of the performances are inspiring. And actually, this time, I went to a lot of the paper presentations, and uh, it was great. I, there were things about education that I learned. Like, I went to this one paper that was talking about ways of uh, of teaching young people to improvise using the idea of, of divergent activities instead of convergent activities. So instead of having the kids do things where there is a right answer, what scale do you play on this chord? You know, there is a right answer having them do things where there's a multitude of right answers, you know, where you can, oops, where you can knock the recorder off. Of yeah, the table. exactly. No, that's- um, having them do things where um, you know, whatever they play in this context, is right and that uh, it explored the idea of encouragement and helping them find a way to be comfortable with it and get the young people, give them an intro where they feel safe and comfortable and, and ready to improvise instead of this thing where, oh, well, no, I played a B-flat on the G major chord and now I'm in trouble, you know, trying yeah. to avoid that approach, uh, which was interesting. I saw a very interesting paper on uh, computer-mediated improvisation where the guy talked about some of the design of his software and actually got me, uh, I think, saved me about 50 hours of trial and error on my upcoming dissertation project. <laughs> Just one thing that he said, I was like, oh, that will save me a lot of time. So that's what I told my wife. I said, this trip paid for itself on that one comment. <laughs>
1: that's great. Uh, well, there's a couple things I want to react to there. One is this idea of, of finding a space for student improvisers where there's no wrong answer, which strikes me as very much in line with who you probably are as an educator anyway. I've never taken one of your classes, but I've heard enough of your music at this point to think that that must be the kind of the bag that you're in anyway. Well, and
2: a lot of the teaching that I'm doing right now is actually technology-based stuff. I'm I'm not teaching a whole lot of improvising, at least in my current university scene. I do with private students. And actually, I had a couple of weeks ago, I, I got to be the clinician for the Junior High School Honor Jazz Band. Out in the suburb where I live. And it, when he first called me, it kind of scared me. He said, well, I realize these, you know, seventh and eighth graders might be a little below you. And I laughed. I said, Mike, I think they might be above me. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> sure if I, if I know how to deal with this because I'm used to you know, professional musicians, and you say, do this, and right. or do, you know, think about the rose and play, or <laughs> right, whatever right. you tell them, you know. <laughs> and uh, But the little kids, I have to say, it was the most fun I've had in a weekend in a long time. They were super excited, and my attitude was, let's go in and make it be fun, and anybody who wants a solo can have one. And so we all stood around the piano, and I said, okay, look, if you start with these notes, it'll be cool and I would play the piano and they would fiddle around those notes and go around the group and and they had a blast. It was so weird after the concert to have like <clears throat> little kids and their grandmothers coming up saying, "Can we take a picture with you?" <laughs> 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 like that, "Oh, sure." Right. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but so I've I look forward to getting more opportunities to do that, especially with younger Students, which I haven't had a lot of chance to do, because it's it's fun. It's nice to to have. There's a, a heavy responsibility to sometimes being the first person to expose them to uh, to an opportunity to improvise, and to have them leave that with the right taste in their mouth. I think is really important. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I took more. it very seriously, and it was fun. We ended up having a good time.
1: That's great. <laughs> Another thing I wanted to respond to uh, regarding the conference is this idea of, of computer-mediated improvisation. And I've had a little experience with that uh, with a friend who composed uh, as part of his, I think, doctoral work. I can't remember. He has so many degrees at this point. A piece where uh, he used Max MSP. Mm-hmm. um and i played the saxophone and the computer then in kind of real time altered the saxophone lines that i had played played them back to me and i reacted to those and it was this right uh it, it seemed like another human being although it was operating just within a set of parameters that he had devised and so i wonder if that's similar at all to the stuff that you teach or do and if not it's tell us how it
2: it's similar to some stuff that i'm working on um the guy who presented the paper is what's his name thomas chufo i think i'd mangled his name but he teaches at Towson and in, in Baltimore and in uh, and his system was uh, I think it did take the input and then manipulate it and the things that I'm working on are going to be more generative in scope in that the computer will be an agent that will input material just like the human it won't just mm. just react to what I do but it'll have its own personality so it'll it'll Be like improvising with another entity. I'm, I'm careful not to say that the computer's improvising because we put all of these, these concepts of intent on our improvisations. And I'm, I'm not going to say that I can create intent within my computer (laughs) because I don't think I can. But, uh, but yeah, so it'll, it'll, the idea is if you turn it on and leave it alone, it'll make music by itself. And if you play with it, you'll influence each other.
1: And you will influence each other. How? How does what you play influence what the computer does?
2: Well, I haven't finished the program yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> uh, I, I'm Hopefully in the same ways that we influence each other as humans. Mm. You know, if we were to play a duo right now, you know, one of us would play something that would catch the other one's ear. And then we'd say, okay, well, let's go down this path and see what this does. And then at some point, one of us would get sick of that and do something different. And we may or may not grab it. You know, you might say, okay, I'm tired of that. I'm going to do this. And I might say, well, I'm not tired of that. I'm going to keep doing this. You know, so it's the finding that spot of independence is important. And there's certain people that you improvise with who are very comfortable doing something that's not what you're doing. Like uh, my good friend, Jeb Bishop, a trombonist in Chicago. Jeb's very comfortable in that we have two different coexisting spaces. We can play duos and be doing seemingly very different things that come together to make an interesting musical moment. Mm. Um, and he's really comfortable with just like, I'm going to hold my ground and you hold your ground and it'll be cool. Whereas other people are, are much more, uh, that's more difficult for them. It's easier to kind of try to follow your partner. Um,
1: Is that a case where there's no right answer?
2: I think so. I mean, I think it's all just decisions of, of taste. And sometimes it's, it's concept driven or I don't want to say dogmatically driven, but we have certain aesthetics or philosophies about what we're trying to accomplish mm. that will drive how we make those decisions. Um, I find the less I think when I'm doing it, the better. If I just try to let myself get to a musical space and then go. And if that space tells me, Oh, I need to follow what he's doing. Or ignore what he's doing. Hopefully the music turns out okay. Does that include
1: even uh, musical situations that you are the leader of, that you're creating, bringing the musicians together for, having the concept for, etc.?
2: Yeah, I, I look at my stuff as leader, more as an instigator. Hmm. To like set up a situation and get some people in a space and turn them loose. You know, like if I call Dave Capello to come play on a gig. It's not because I want to tell Dave what to do. It's because I like what Dave does. So I try to create a situation where what Dave does will be cool and then wind it up and let it go. Once we actually start playing, I don't feel so much like the leader, except for maybe when that thing ends and I get to decide what we do next. Mm-hmm. But sometimes even then they'll run off without me and just start playing some <laughs> other of my tunes. It's like, wait a minute. They, well, okay, yeah, here we go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> kind of keeping that in mind, will you talk about uh, The Tree on the Mound, the new project? Yes.
2: The, I just recorded in November with Kid Jordan, Hummy, Drake, and Joshua Abrams. Um, I'm, the title, I believe, is going to be The Tree on the Mound. Um And I'm calling it the instigation quartet, and that's based on some pieces that we recorded that are called instigation quartets, which are text-based improvisation starters. The idea behind them is to eliminate that little negotiation process at the beginning of the improvisation to start from a full-fledged texture. So, for example, one of them might say there's instruction for each player, and one player might get play noises softly, and the next player might get melodic fragments, and the next player might get long tones or um, play something to complement player three or those types of instructions. And then the instruction is once that space settles in, then just improvise as you would in any other setting. So it doesn't necessarily hold that space for the five minutes or ten minutes or however long it lasts, but it starts from a reasonably coherent musical space and then moves on from there.
1: So those instructions are uh, intentionally grouped, or are they randomly pulled from a hat? No, no, they're, they're
2: intentionally they're grouped. grouped. Okay. The, I mean, I do – I consider them compositions in that I assembled them in a specific way on mm. purpose.
1: Is that actually the hotel room phone? That
2: is the hotel room phone. Go. I don't know Who's how that all is all possible. <laughs>
0: Ha ha ha.
1: Kid Jordan, in some kind of context for folks who might not be familiar with him, he, everyone needs to be, I think. <laughs>
2: yeah, Kid, in, the, in certain circles of musical culture, Kid is huge and famous and wildly important. And in many other circles of musical culture, people don't know who Kid is. Kid's been in New Orleans for, let's see, he grew up in Louisiana. I guess he's in his mid-70s now. And I sort of, to my mind, Kid is the godfather of New Orleans free jazz, um, when I was 18 and had just moved to new Orleans, if you wanted to hear something wild and woolly and crazy in new Orleans, kid was the guy that was doing it. Um, well, I, I shouldn't say just kid kid worked a lot with Clyde Kerr, um, who's deceased. Clyde's a trumpet player and Alvin Fielder, the drummer, um, who lives in Mississippi now are some of kids, regular collaborators. Um, but kid I think is wildly influential To the, those of us in New Orleans that do these sorts of things. And then he taught at Southern University of New Orleans for a long time. So he's, he was really better known in town often as an educator. Mm. Um, I don't think he's teaching there specifically anymore, but he still runs a summer camp every summer and they do very straight ahead kind of stuff at the summer camp, you know, but it's kids got that spirit of, you know, There are a lot of right answers.
1: (laughs) And I love the juxtaposition of his sound and your sound. His sound to me, it's just like, it's like somebody tearing apart sheets of plywood or something, ripping through them. I mean, it's just this, the most robust, like edgy sound. He's
2: very intense musically. Um, even when he's being soft and melodic, it's very intense. And it was funny. That recording session was the first time we had played together. In any sort of creative context. Um, Kid also did. I mean, in New Orleans, we all do other things. You know, we all have our, our other professional musician roles. And so I'd played with Kid a bunch in horn sections behind, like, the Temptations and stuff. Kid <laughs> played baritone on the, all these, you know. And on loads of old R&B recordings and stuff, Kid played baritone. And uh, and I remember the first time he ever called me for a gig, I got really excited. I was like, man, Kid Jordan's calling me. This is great. And it was like, yeah, can you play with the Temptations at the Essence Festival? <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought, well, that's cool playing with the Temptations at the Essence Festival, but that wasn't why I was hoping Kid was calling me. Uh, so these sessions actually were the first time we had played together in a creative context, Um and Hamid helped set that up. I think my association – Kid's played with Hamid quite a bit, and my association with Hamid – I think helped make that happen, but it was really great. I felt fabulous. We finished the first take and kid looks up and says, that was pretty good. My rate might go up. (laughs) I was like, okay, we're in a good spot.
1: Now, there are pieces on this record that are not, at least uh, I don't think they are, put together in the same way that you just described with these sets of instructions, right? The the things that are not titled in the same way, this instigation That's right.
2: We recorded a couple of Fred Anderson tunes and a couple of Kid tunes and one of my tunes, which are actual, you know, dots on a staff compositions. Um, And part of that was because I had this chance to record with Kid and I wanted to cover a bunch of basses. And part of it, too, is just looking at what I think makes a good record. A little bit of both of those worlds, the combination of the more freely improvised feeling things and the more structured in terms of groove or tonality or Mm -hmm. however it happens to structure itself, things, I think go well together. And so that combination makes 50 or 60 minutes or whatever it is that you can listen to straight through and and take a nice path and... Feel good about it, you know, because some of the the more abstract stuff, it's hard to listen to in huge chunks. Would so I like one of the things I like about this record is that none of them are any more than eight or nine minutes long, and and they're sort of interspersed in this way that I think it, you know you can sit and listen to it and have an enjoyable experience. Will you talk about
1: uh, a little more about your role, kind of as an instigator in this studio session? What what you were actually doing to create? either the the vibe, to pick out the music, so on and so forth?
2: Well, the most important thing is finding good musicians. Mm. Like if if you get Hamid and Joshua and Kid together, that's most of the battle's won <laughs> at that point. You can pretty much put anything in front of them, and it's going to sound good. Um, I had, for the session, like the regular instigation quartets, as I've performed them often, um, just say player one, player two, player three, player four, and we usually assign those roles on stage. So as a moment comes up I'll say okay you're player 2 you're player 3 I'll be player 4 you be player 1. Um for the recording session I had I actually made a version that said Jeff Kid Joshua Hamid so I sort of mapped out ahead of time who was going to take which role at the beginning of each of those episodes. Mm. Partly cuz I didn't want to get nervous in the middle of the the session and do so you know, I wanted to have a little more planning. And the other thing was some of these instructions I was like, Oh, I want to make sure I get to hear I want to see what Kid will do if I tell him play a snaky line. <laughs> right. <laughs> um because actually when I wrote one of the instructions is snaky line. And when I wrote that instruction I had Kid in mind. Never not having any idea that he would ever play it. But when I did the first was there were particular musicians that came to mind like, Oh, there's this thing they do. I wonder if I can get somebody else to do that. So if I make an instruction stumbling because Dave Capello does this thing that to me sounds like stumbling and I love it when he does it. It's like, Oh, I wonder if I could get one of my Chicago buddies to do this Dave thing. If I tell him stumbling, you know, so, so a couple of specific instructions came from things that people do that I like.
1: When we last spoke, which was about two and a half years ago, you were talking about uh, having just lists of titles on an app on your phone from interesting things that people said. And I wonder if, any of that uh, comes into play on the record including
2: maybe the title. Yes, The Tree on the Mound did come off of that list and the funny thing is often when I take things off the list, then the story comes with it of how I got the name and when I wrote that tune right before the session, um, I was looking through the list for a title and I saw that and realized, okay, well that's the name of that tune, but for the life of me, I can't remember why I wrote it on the list. <laughs> I don't know why <laughs> I think there are these Native American mounds on the campus at LSU, and I think there's a tree on one of them. And at some point, somebody said something about the tree on the mound, and I thought it sounded cool. And it did. It ended up, it's the right name for that song. But it doesn't really have anything to do with these mounds on the campus at LSU. (laughs) It's just that. So, yeah, that one has much less entertaining a story than some of the other song titles. I still have the list, though, if
1: you that's great.
2: Um, uh, I'll save you, me looking up what the sure. most recent addition <laughs> to the list is. Uh,
1: when we last spoke, the a series that you were curating had been going for about a year and a half and was starting to to build an audience. And I'm wondering uh, now, so it's, I guess, been yeah, close to five years. And, open Ears Music yeah.
2: Series, uh, Tuesday nights at the Blue Nile in New Orleans on Frenchman Street. It'll be five years in November that we will have been going. Um and it's, yeah, it's, it's been amazing. It's kind of taken a little life of its own. Um, we've had, we're getting more and more out of town people. When we did the recording session, Hamid and Joshua came and played. Um, we had Ken Vandermark and Tim Daisy. I've got, uh, plans coming up to have Dave Rempus come down and, uh, Steve Swell, Geb Ullman, Barry Alchul, Hill Green Quartet is supposed to be there this fall. Um. Uh, bars and Ick Hinneman. You know, so we're oddly like people are getting in touch with me saying, Hey, we want to come play. I'm like, how do you know about this? <laughs> and why do you think we have money? <laughs> right. Exactly. More important. <laughs> um, but yeah. And even the, the local musicians, I'm booked, I'm booked into May now and, uh, and have been since probably the beginning of the year i mean we're recording this in february and uh and it's not a funded thing in any way it's a door gig now sometimes the door take is reasonable especially for a local band um but i think people just appreciate having a place where they don't feel any constraints on what they do musically and that was really the goal behind it was to have some place where you could work out what you need to work out if you had some crazy idea that you know, a string quartet dressed in tinfoil playing airplane noises needed to happen, then, well, maybe we could find a place to do that, you know. Um, and and I feel good in that a number of things have happened that I don't think would have happened had it not been for the series, that people have presented projects that the only reason it actually got put together was because they knew they had a place where, okay, I'll at least I'll get to perform this once you know so i feel good about that and it's and it's given us a good sense of community the hang on the balcony the musicians all a lot of musicians come hang out and so it's not i think it's it's been a healthy thing for the outsters of new orleans
1: and you were saying last time that uh it was kind of just getting to a place then when Rather than in the beginning, where you would look into the room and know everyone, you were getting to the point where you could stand in the back of the room and not know anyone who was in the room watching. It was just a whole audience of people who came organically it's,
2: without you. Yeah, and, and fortunately, I think it's getting more to the point where it's even become an entity to people not associated with me. Like I've never really wanted it to be Jeff's open ears thing. I've just, I just want it to be a thing that exists. And if people know I'm associated with it, fine. But it's better if they go like, oh, they do crazy stuff on Tuesdays at the Blue Nile. Let's go check that out. And and that's nice. And I think it's getting to that point. We're getting more and more people who come in out of some sense of curiosity. Um, it's starting to get where out of town people will hear about it and come by. Um, so that's cool. It feels good. It's nice to be able to help this space exist for uh, for interesting music to happen.
1: and i'll have on other nights and were they initially reluctant at all to, to try something like this
2: um no they're actually uh jesse page the guy that runs the club was very open to it right from the get-go and they do um there's two spaces there there's an upstairs and a downstairs and uh downstairs it's it's a kind of new orleans style music club you'll get kermit ruffins you'll get soul rebels brass band um you know, various funk and rock bands, some more jazz kind of stuff like washboard jazz, uh, washboard, jazz trio and things like that. Um, and upstairs on the other nights, some nights there's DJs There's They kind of do like some country indie rock stuff. It's a pretty wide ranging music club. Most of the time. Cool. And they've given us the Tuesdays and Jesse's been super cool about leaving us alone and not, I mean, part of the arrangement is, you know, we don't have any financial intertwinings we don't give them money they don't give us money um which makes it nice because i wanted to make sure to avoid a situation where whoever is running the club could say ah you know that band you booked last week didn't really draw and we're giving you 20% of the bar and you need to get more people you know it's they're super cool on the nights when it's light i don't hear anything about it on the nights when it's great they take the bar and they're happy with it right. and, you know and it helps we have a fabulous bartender a guy named Ollie Stevenson who I always say is one of the world's three greatest free jazz bartenders and uh and and having somebody behind the bar that is into what's going on and supports it's really important and that's a a piece of advice I got when I was starting this cuz the open ears is modeled on a there's some musician presented series in Chicago, specifically at the Hungry Brain on Sunday nights. And Josh Berman, who I played in the Lucky Sevens with, um, is part of the duo that runs that. And so when I first started, I called Josh and I said, so what lessons did you guys learn early on that I can apply to making this thing work? And one of the things he said, you know, he said, you don't really have much control of this, but if you have a bartender that's into it, it helps immensely. And, and Dan, the guy that tends bar at the Hungry Brain in Chicago on Sundays, is one of the other top three free jazz bartenders in the world. And who's the third one? I don't know. I figure there's got to be another this cool be one another somewhere. One. Right. So I, okay, I, I don't want to be like too exclusive <laughs> in my list. Um,
1: Why does that matter, having a bartender who cares about the music or who even is into it
2: in any way? Because on the nights when he doesn't make any money because nobody's there, he doesn't complain about it. And – on the nights that he has to sit and listen to just weird all night long, he doesn't complain about it. And the first thing that will shut something like that down is the club owner having to listen to the bartender complain about working that night when it's hard to fill that night. It's like, okay, I'm not making any money that night. Anyway, you guys are out of here, you know, but Ollie's great on the nights when it sucks. He's like, yeah, the music was cool. I had a good time. And he's, you know, he's like really become part of the community of musicians. And it's the same way with Dan in Chicago. And, and I think that welcomingness from the club is really important to give it that thing of comfort. Like we were talking about young improvisers being comfortable improvising. I think the same thing's true of adult improvisers presenting in a club. When you get to a situation where you feel comfortable that you really can do whatever it is you feel like you need to do at that moment, that's when you get to the good stuff. You know, and that's kind of the space we're trying to make happen.
1: Do you feel like, uh, in your experience as a, as a touring musician, like you spent a lot of time on the road with Hamid, for example, do you, do you feel like you encounter those situations pretty frequently or are those the rare things that you remember?
2: Yeah, it's a little warped, though, like touring with Hamid, because we'll go to these places in Europe, and there's this promoter that's really excited to have Hamid and his band, so they go out of their way to make you feel comfortable. Um, when you're the, you know, quote-unquote big deal coming in from out of town, or in my case, when you're in the band with the big deal <laughs> coming in from out of town, um, people go out of their way to make you feel comfortable. I, but that thing where you're just like Joe Blow local dude, having that comfort of feeling like if I get up here and yell and scream and light my saxophone on fire. Well, actually, if you light your saxophone on fire, you get a big crowd. But, you know, if I just get – and I'm, I'm making it out like what we do is really weird. Often it's not that weird. But it's that comfort to be able to be weird if you need to or to be able to not be weird. You know, a lot of times in the sort of so-called free jazz or avant-garde circles, there's this pressure that what you do has to be weird. And, and I'm like, well, no, if, if you want to come do something that's not that weird, that's okay too. You know, that the comfort to really do what you need to do is important.
0: (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's interesting, even just to bring it back to the Tree on the Mound, which by the time we air this interview may or may not in fact be the title of the record, but uh yeah. to, to bring it back to the record I'm now calling the Tree on the Mound. The very yeah, first... uh,
2: that's the working title. Okay, we'll stick cool, with we'll that. stick with it. Yeah.
1: Uh the very first track, which is The River Niger, right, is the first yeah. track. Um I think really fits in perfectly with what you're just saying because it has I mean it has this really cool, kind of insistent rhythmic thing that's happening. Well, and I even remember uh listening back again recently to Similar in the Opposite Way that, uh, there are, there are tracks on there that are about the groove as much as anything, too. So there are times when it's, you know, out in what might seem like a more difficult space from the listener's perspective. And there are times when it's like totally grounded in something you can really easily get a, well, part feel of that's on.
2: just, you know, like I grew up in South Louisiana and all of my professional life, I've lived in New Orleans and groove's a huge part of that music. I would, it would be disingenuous for me to play a whole gig without being in a groove at some point. That's too much of who I am historically, you know, like when you play in George Porter's band, you know that like, that's about as groove as it gets. Right. And, you know, so that's a, that's like a big part of my musical history. So I, I think it would be dishonest for me to come in with my improvising quartet or jazz quartet, whatever you want to call it, my bam quartet. Um, and, and, and not at some point play a groove. Cause that's just, I like that. I, I like, and the funny thing is, you know, like Hamid's got this whole rep for being like Mr. Free Jazz, but dude, groove's like crazy. <laughs> so when you go play those things, it's a lot of fun, you know? And, uh, and I think a lot of us that, that sort of get pegged as more abstract improvisers like doing those things. And so I, I like to have that space there.
1: Is there any kind of – in in the same way that, that New Orleans music uh, – when people hear New Orleans music, they uh, – just that phrase, I mean, there are some things that initially leap to mind. Are there any things in the more free or experimental scene that have some specific New Orleans flavor even if it's not the flavor we associate with the rest of New Orleans?
2: Yeah. I mean it's happening in New Orleans. We're all breathing the same air and eating the same good food. And hearing the same things on WWZ or whatever, you right. know, I, I think it's all connected in some way. Although the connections might be more more well hidden sometimes, um, I I think the the way New Orleans, I hate to like put a blanket over the New Orleans improvisational scene, but I think we deal with groove on a more open level than a lot of places. We're not afraid to go there because it's you know it's it's part of the scene in which we live and another thing that new Orleans has for better or worse is we you know people can make a living playing music there so most of the guys that are doing artistically driven music are also doing commercially driven music um you can't make a living doing only artistically driven music <laughs> right in new orleans or much or, less, or anywhere nearly yeah. anywhere else right <laughs> um and much of the commercially driven stuff that we do it's you know it's about bringing the party and making the booty shake, and it's sort of hard to let that go just because, okay, it's Tuesday night, we're at the Boone Island, we can do whatever we want. You know, it's still fun to bring the party. So we probably won't have anyone on open ears doing Hey Pocky way, but you'll hear pieces of that groove come up. Sure. You know,
1: Uh, a few weeks ago, Barry uh, Alshill was on the show, and he said, you know, if you if all you play is the kind of honk squeak music and that's the only thing you can do, you're no more free than anyone else. Yes,
2: and I agree. I had a a buddy of mine tell me once, a record producer told him, you're not playing free enough. (laughs) It's like, what does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) How can I not? Anyway, yeah, no, I agree. And that's part of the idea behind these instigation quartets is to encourage some more and less abstract spaces sure and it allows me to put together a set that because some of them start in these very abstract kind of spaces and some of them like one of the instructions on one of them is groove and sometimes i'll give that instruction to the drummer or sometimes to someone else but it starts the episode in this very rhythmically centered space you know and yeah i i completely agree with what barry said like if if you're not free to like walk and swing then you're not free. By the same token, you also have to be free not to walk and you know.
1: Right, yeah. You uh, you mentioned George Porter a few minutes ago, someone you spent a lot of time playing with and who recently got a, a Lifetime Achievement Award. So maybe you could just say a few more words about him, who he is. And
2: George Porter is uh, a bass player for the meters. Um, to my ears, is like one of the defining factors of the sound of New Orleans funk um, and sort of, world funk on some level through that. Um, and I've played in the running partners regularly for about eight years. Um, he's doing a slightly smaller version of the band now, but sometimes for big events, he'll bring back the big horn section. And, uh, so for this lifetime achievement award given by offbeat magazine, he, you know, we all got to go play all the old and much older than me running partners. And, uh, his daughter Katrina put together this great tribute band that played right before our running partner set. And uh, her idea was she wanted to get a band up there that he wasn't in because she said he always takes over whenever he's in the band. <laughs> so uh, so she emailed us all about, you know, in the horns, do you want to play in this tribute band? And I didn't even know who was going to be on it, really. I was like, yeah, sure, I'm, you know, definitely. And uh, so we get there, and Stanton Moore's playing drums, and David Burrard, who's the bass player for Dr. John, was there, and Papa Molly, and then the regular running partner guitar player, Brent Anderson, and then Dr. John was playing piano, and Art Neville was playing organ, and Cyril Neville was singing, and Big Chief Monk Boudreaux was singing, and the running partner's horn, so we get out on stage and start playing, I forget what it was, Pockyway or something, Ico Ico, man. I, I can't remember, some, it was, the whole set was classic New Orleans, and, uh, and I leaned over to Mark Mullins, who was also in the horn section, and I said to Mark, I guess it would be uncool if I got out my phone and started taking pictures right now. <laughs> because I'm like two feet from Dr. John, who is sitting next to Art Neville, and Cyril's right in front of him. And I'm like, because this is, you know, like, come on. And Mark was like, yeah, that would be... A, yeah. As soon as we finish saying that, I look up and Cyril's got his phone out and he's taking <laughs> pictures. <laughs> I said, well, I guess it's Cyril can do things that are still cool that wouldn't still be cool (laughs) if i did them
1: (laughs) oh that's fantastic
2: but yeah that's i mean george is is the kind of figure that you can call dr john and art neville and say hey we're doing this this uh, tribute for george you want to come play and they say yes
0: (laughs) The people of the people of the world. 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 The people of the world.
1: I wanted to explore this then and I forgot. But earlier, we were talking about uh, computer music that you're working on, and um, you had, in fact, suggested yourself when we were booking this interview talking about the, the kind of intersection between the uh, kind of computer driven music that you're working on and the maybe the more classic improvised music that we are familiar with. Do you want to talk a little about that and
2: kind of sure. what those worlds um, mean for you? Yeah, I'm, the computer music thing comes originated in a slightly more academic space. I'm trying. Desperately to finish a PhD in experimental music and digital media at LSU, and um, when I first started doing that, I was doing a lot of uh, fixed media pieces, what they would have called tape pieces 20 years ago. Um, we're using you know electronic manipulations to create these sounds that are fixed in their state. You, you know, in the concert you play them back, and actually at LSU they have this uh, super cool loudspeaker array called ICAST. It's 28 speakers, and they're all pointed different directions in the hall and you sort of mix the stuff live or diffuse it as they say i um, mean it brings this real performative aspect to listening to two-channel fixed media pieces um, but in the process of starting to make those pieces it really made me look at okay what is it that i find compelling about these sounds or this combination of sounds in this order and i found that that greatly influenced the way i improvised on the trombone and that some of my aesthetics from the trombone improvisations came to uh, to the electronic music as well. And, and I think there's, uh, actually there was a paper presented about this at the ISM conference this week, that there's a real shared aesthetic between improvised music and electronic music that's often not explored, and for some reason we sort of cordon ourselves off into these other cliques sometimes. But a lot of times, like, the way we look at sound and deal with sound and explore timbre um, can be very similar, so that we might have more friends out there than we realize, <laughs> if, if we'll just look around the corner, you know. Um, and then the working on the computer improvisation stuff, or computer-accompanied improvisation, however I want to say it. Um, i think the programming part of it's very interesting but i'm finding that i'm learning more about myself as an improviser through trying to figure out how to make the computer behave then i'm really learning about getting the computer to improvise i mean i still think it's the whole thing's an exercise of figuring out what it is in me how that works and how to make that more interesting
1: and how do you even begin to dissect that? How do you how do you stand outside yourself and figure out, this is what I do as an improviser?
2: So you set up the computer to run some algorithm, and you hit go, and it plays. And you think, oh, that's not very convincing. And then you say, okay, why is it not convincing? Well, it's not convincing because the rhythms are too similar. So you go back and you tweak the insides of the thing so there's more rhythmic diversity. And then you listen to it, and you say... It's still not that interesting. <laughs> and and you start to s- sort of pick apart, like, on the very low level, what are the specifics of these sounds that make them believable. And, uh, for a long time, I was in the middle of working on one of the predecessor pieces, um, and I found myself, every time I was on a gig, I was, like, starting to go into this analytical mode and thinking about... Oh, what? Am, why did I do that? What am I doing? And it was starting to drive me crazy. And uh, it, I guess it was Jazz Fest last year, or the year before. I had this gig. It was a duo gig with Dave Capello. We were playing a set on a larger concert. And I told Dave, I said, "I'm, I, I'm, thinking too much, man. You got to clear my head." And uh, he, he said, "Yeah, okay, no problem." And sure enough, he did. He he knocked it out of me on, on, on that gig. But it, it's dangerous. I mean, that that sort of. Uh, self-assessment Self-assess- can be dangerous because the the key i think to being a good improviser is being able to not think when you're in the heat of that moment and getting really intellectualized about it can be dangerous because it encourages you to think in the heat of that moment so they can sort of be counterproductive aims and it requires a good bit of mental compartmentalization
1: yeah yeah, not to keep quoting Barry Alshul, but I remember him also saying that in the interview. That's okay. You yeah. can quote Barry all day. <laughs> that's I fine. remember him saying, if you're thinking, you're late.
2: Yeah, right. Exactly. Or, or even the thing, like there's this idea that if you think about how you're doing something, it alters the way you do it. Mm. Um, and this was talked about in terms of uh, brass pedagogy, like we're having this conversation about where the tongue hits. And uh one of the guys said, look, as soon as you start thinking about where your tongue hits, it changes. You, you know, you've got to find some way to get that information without you having to think about
1: it. Yeah. And for the listeners at home, I mean, just start breathing intentionally right now. Or get up and walk around and focus on your walking. and
2: Right. It will yeah. not be the same. Yeah. How do I walk? <laughs> right. You can't think about walking. Yeah. Or any sort of athletic analogy. Yeah. Um, I played a little golf at some points in my life and I've read a bunch about learning how to do it. And one of the things was you're allowed one swing thought. You can only think about one thing when you swing the club. Although like you can go on the practice range and think about all kind of stuff. I need to keep my elbow in and I need to do this and I need to do that. But when you're out there actually playing, if you think about more than one thing, you're in trouble and it's kind of the same thing with playing music. So wind players, a lot of times our, our swing thought is air. Mm. I'll keep the air moving. Well, what that really does is it keeps your lips buzzing and it keeps your throat up. It does all this other stuff, but there's only room in our brain for one thing to think. And I find the same thing when I'm improvising. I don't really have room to think about like, oh, well, I think Jeb's going to do this next. So I'm going to try to, you know, you just kind of have to find that space and hear the music and go with that. Once it gets too intellectualized, other things start to shut down and it... It's hard to explain.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you again. My guest is Jeff Albert, and the the new CD is probably called "The Tree on the Mound." And by the time I'm telling you this, I'll have recorded an intro with the actual CD title and where to get it. it's so, some uh, music. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's been such a pleasure, man. Thank you for taking the time to do it.
2: Thanks. It's nice to put a face with the voice.
1: <laughs> I hope. <laughs> That's music from The Tree on the Mound, the new album by Jeff Albert, a trombonist based in New Orleans. Jeff was also uh, very cool to hang around with when I was on my tour, and I went to New Orleans for the first time last year. I got to actually hear Jeff play live, which was very cool, and uh, he showed me around to some places. It was it was great. I really uh, enjoyed finally getting a chance to to spend some time with him. Remember, the Kickstarter campaign has, as if you're listening to this on Monday, the 22nd, has nine days to go. It ends at the end of the day on the 31st, and the goal is to raise $6,000. And as I'm recording this, we've got just over $2,100 left to go, so we can absolutely make it. And obviously, if we blow past $6,000 and raise even more money, that's just all that much more I can do with the show. But in any case, we have to at least get to $6,000, or else uh, the result is zero. So please go to thejazzsession.com, click on the Kickstarter links, which are everywhere on the site, and pledge whatever you can afford. There are all kinds of thank you gifts. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Come back next time, if there is a next time, which I hope there will be, for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.